If you'd remain standing, I love the excitement, the welcoming of each other. Um, if you'd remain standing, we're going to read from God's words today, just a portion of what Sean will be sharing. But uh, the passage that we're looking at is from Exodus chapter 11, verses 1 through 3. And it says, The Lord said to Moses, Yet one plague more I will bring upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt. Afterward, he will let you go from here. When he lets you go, he will drive you away completely. Speaking now in the hearing of the people, that they ask every man of his neighbor and every woman of her neighbor for silver and gold jewelry. And the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Moreover, the man Moses was very great in the land of Egypt, in the sight of Pharaoh's servants, in the sight of the people. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You guys can take a seat. Thanks, Kim. All right, well, um, I know it's been said a few times, but good morning again. Um, my name's Sean. If I don't know you, I'm the lead pastor teaching pastor here for Redemption Peoria. Uh, if you don't know, Redemption Church, one church, nine congregations throughout the state of Arizona. A lot to that, but um, you might have questions regardless, no matter what I explain up here. So feel free to come up and ask myself or any of the leaders that you see by the Connect Desk. We'll help navigate those conversations. Um, I'm going to pray for us here in a minute, but there's a few things I do want to make you aware of that are just kind of important for a congr- us as a congregation to know, specifically Redemption Peoria. So, um, yeah, we have, you know, the loop that goes out. If you're not part of that, it's an email thing that we send out uh, every now and then. We have the screens and, you know, Facebook posts or whatever, but there are two things we want you to be aware of that are coming up really quickly. One is in a week and one is in about a month. Uh, the first one is uh, child dedication. So, um, if you have not had your kids, uh, dedicated, we're doing that next week. Okay. And I told first service this, and I mean it, look, don't miss it. You don't want them on judgment day sitting there going, I was never dedicated. Okay. That would be all bad. All right. Just throwing that out there. All right. So keep that in mind. Uh, if you have not had your uh, child dedicated, uh, you can go to, there's a link redaz.in forward slash and child dedication CD. You'll see that. Uh, yeah, you could sign up your kids uh, that way. However you want to do that. There's room in both services to be able to do that still. The second thing is baptism. So we do baptisms twice a year, once on Easter and then once again in the fall. And um, that's right around the corner in October. So if you've never been baptized, uh, we really want to encourage you to at least think through what that means. If you're a believer going, I, I follow Jesus, I say I follow Jesus, he tells me to do things. And one of those things is to be baptized. I should probably do that. Uh, we're going to have a baptism class. We'll help process any questions you might have in regards to what that looks like. So uh, baptisms and child dedications, both uh, we're going to throw it to you. Now you know. Now you could, could never say uh, you didn't know. And then there's one other thing separate from those notes. Just as a congregation, I'm always going to keep these needs in front of us, and I'll just keep it as it is. A lot of you guys are going to leave after this service, and you're going to go home, and I love it. It's Sabbath. You're, you're kicking it. But there is about the same probably 10 to 12 people that stay here every Sunday and break everything down. I don't know if you know this, but this is a school Monday through Friday. And so there's stuff set up in classrooms. So when you drop your kids off, you, there's not just pipe and drape like up all week, right? We set that up at 6 a.m. There's a crew that does that, and we've got to break it down again afterwards. So I'm kind of putting that out as like a drive-by guilting a little bit, like, hey, feel that, um, because those same people want to go have lunch. They also want to take naps. They also want to spend time with their family. And if you're like under 25, you've got zero excuse, okay? You don't tithe, and you need to start working more, okay? So let's go, okay? So uh, anyway, uh, so anyway, 
all jokes aside, though, we, we could use help. And I don't mean just today. I mean, sign up, reach out, email somebody and say, hey, here's, here's uh, uh, how I'd like to volunteer. Okay, so take that for whatever it's worth. Hopefully, if nothing else, you hear nothing else today, hear that one announcement. I'm just kidding. Um, we're going to talk about the gospel, which is important. Um, I'm going to pray for us, and we're going to jump in. I'll give us some context, because if you're new, we're in the book of Exodus, and there's just a lot to it. I mean, we're, we're a third of the way through it, a little, little uh, over a third of the way through it. So there's a lot to, to what we need to cover today. So let me pray for us, and then we'll jump in. Father, uh, right now we come as uh, people who are um, going to look at your word, study your word, and read it. Um, meditate on it. We're going to digest it in a way that we let it sit on our hearts. And so I, honestly, I, I pray for a few things. One, I pray you'd give us faith through it, that our faith would grow. Uh, two, I pray that you'd convict us in such a way that we'd recognize our life is in a place that needs to adjust to your will. And three, I pray we would be honest with ourselves uh, when it comes to the integrity of it, that we wouldn't see what we want to see out of it, but we would see what the text says, and then we would wrestle with what the text says and try to get out what you're trying to communicate. So help us in that. Um, be with us as we do this. Illuminate the scriptures for us. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so here's where we're at. So the book of Exodus has um, gone, a, a, I mean, a legit narrative. I mean, so amazing. Such an amazing narrative. It's God establishing his people here on this earth. His kingdom kind of going through the earth. Uh, currently, they, they are in slavery. And what we have found is as God is establishing his people here on the earth, they're in uh, Egypt. It was a foreign land to them. And there's been this back and forth a lot between Pharaoh and God. God has kind of chosen his champion in Moses. And Moses ha- asked Aaron to come along with him. So kind of as, as his uh, voice piece. And so Moses and Aaron have been going back and forth forth with Pharaoh, essentially saying, let us go, get us out. We don't want to be in slavery. We want to go and worship God. And Pharaoh goes, no, no, no. And what we saw last week, which by the way, I'm extremely grateful that we have a congregation that is open in the area of allowing uh, guys like Charles and Juan to preach. I love that. Um, you guys love on them. I, I know I have my own personal role as they want to be pastors and teachers one day. Like, believe me, I'm dicing them up. Okay. Come Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. I'm like, you did this terribly. You did this. Terribly. Like, that's my job. I love that you guys are uh, loving on them. And we have room even as a congregation to go, Hey, here's like opportunities for future leaders to, to preach side note. Anyway, so they preached last week. So I got a lot to fix, but, um, so they, they, they preached last week. No. Yeah. Uh, so they, they killed it. I thought they did a great job going through the plagues. Um, you guys actually heard Charles Juan was in first service. So they're going through the plagues. And what we found was God has kind of said, Hey, listen, let us go. Right. Pharaoh goes, no. And so he sends this plague, let us go. No. Okay. Sends a plague. Let us go. No. Fine. And so he sent nine plagues. It's been frogs were everywhere, flies were everywhere. And I, I want you to imagine for a second, if you were there, um, what you would see. I want to get a clear picture because sometimes we can think of ancient Egypt as this powerhouse, this river flowing through it, green everywhere, the pyramids are being built. But if you had an opportunity to see it and be there, you would see utter decimation. I mean, there's no green as far as you can see. There's dead frogs everywhere. There's dead flies everywhere. The nation just got over this whole boil epidemic. It's just bad. If you could be there and you could see it, it would just be bad. But what makes it worse is that if you were there, you couldn't see it. Because of all the plagues that took place, there's a darkness that, that covers the land. This is what it said. We read this last week. It said this in verse 21, 22, and 23. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand. This is from last week's text. Uh, toward heaven, that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, a darkness to be felt. 
So Moses stretched out his hand towards heaven, and there was pitch darkness in all the land of Egypt three days. They did not see one another, nor did anyone rise from his place for three days, but all the people of Israel had light where they lived. So we'll get to that last part here in a second. In Egypt, there is just utter darkness. And, and you can see there at the end of verse 21, a darkness to be felt. I remember the first time I hiked the Grand Canyon, we did rim to rim to rim, and uh, we started at 6 p.m., and so we were going to hike through the night. And I got broken off from the group, right? So I'm by myself. It's 2 a.m. We're at the bottom of the Grand Canyon. If you've ever been to the Grand Canyon, there's parts where you go over huge uh, overlays, like these inlets of caves, right? And I'm, I'm going through. It's 2 a.m., and it is dark. There wasn't already sun out. And the fact that the sun wasn't out doesn't help that there's no light. But then you're at the bottom of the canyon. So whatever light could make it through with stars is just blocked out with huge mountainous terrain. And I remember going through, and I'm not just saying this for the point of reference to understand it, but I remember feeling the darkness. Like, honestly, if I would have stopped, which I was too scared to stop, um, I, I, and I would have turned off my headlight, honestly, like there could have been like face eating bats, like right around me. And I wouldn't have known, but it felt dark. It just felt dark. There's times in your room, you're going to sleep. It's like, it's dark. This was like a dense darkness. And this is the type of darkness that is in Egypt. But what I want you to hear from the jump that we saw last week, that though there are plagues and decimation, there's no green and there is darkness in Egypt, there's hope and there's light in Goshen. And I don't know if I need to connect the dots there, but I will. I need you to hear that where the people of God are, there's light. That though there's just complete darkness that can be felt, and some of you have felt darkness, and not just talking literal anymore. You have felt the darkness of this world. There's hope where the people of God are. Where God resides, there's hope. And he's continued to make a distinction between the people of Israel and the people of Egypt. And that picks up on our text because God's not done. He has another plague that he's going to throw down here. And we'll find out here in a second. This is the plague that ultimately breaks Pharaoh. Verse 1, chapter 11. Then the Lord said to Moses, yet one plague more I will bring upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt. Afterwards, he will let go from, he will let you go from here. When he lets you go, he will drive you away completely. Speak now in the hearing of the people that they ask every man of his neighbor and every woman of her neighbor for silver and gold jewelry. And the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Moreover, the man Moses was great in the land of Egypt, in the sight of Pharaoh's servants, and in the sight of the people. So, two declarations here. If you're new, this is what we're going to do. It's a big narrative, a lot of text to read. I'm going to go kind of verse by verse. We'll stop. I'll point out things. And then at the end of the text, we'll step back and go, what can we observe from this? Okay, so that's what we're going to do. So our first text here, we see this two things that stick out. One is God says, he calls his shots as he's been doing. Hey, listen, I'm going to come bring, bring this next plague. We don't know what it is yet, but when it happens, Pharaoh will say, okay, go. He will, he'll respond in the way that we've been trying to get him to all the, the other nine plagues before go. But the second thing, it's kind of comical, kind of just weird is he says, tell the people of Israel, go to their Egyptian neighbors and just collect all their jewelry. Right? So it's like, Hey, what's up? I like that necklace. It's mine now, right? There's this fear of the people, almost like they're bullies, right? Like walking around, give me your lunch. Give it to me. Yeah, give me this, right? Okay? That's not how it happened, but that's how I pictured it in my mind, like an O'Doyle moment. So like, so what, 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 like I, I, like what's going on though is God has clearly given favor to the people of Israel. Um, that's just that the Egyptians know like credit to the Israelites, just fear them. Like the, the, the status has changed. Though they're slaves, they've got the power now. And the beginning of this chapter is meant to communicate that, right? Well, it goes on to say this. 
Verse 4. So Moses said, thus says the Lord, about midnight I will go out to the midst of uh, Egypt, and every firstborn in the land shall die. From the firstborn of Pharaoh, who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl, who is behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle. There shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there has never been, nor ever will be again. Let me read verse 7. But not a dog shall crowl against any of the people of Israel either man or beast, that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. So again, here's this distinction being made, and God gives us insight into what this next plague, this final plague, this tenth plague is, that he is going to allow the firstborn of all of Egypt to die. And it's not just like Pharaoh and his son, right? But like, like the, the slave girl, we'll find out later, even the guy in the dungeon, even the cattle's firstborn. Like animals, firstborn, they're, they're all going to die. And we're going to talk about that and cover that because there's a lot to unpack there. But we get insight into this, this plague of what he's going to do. But, I will, but again, I want to point out the distinction, right? This is going to happen, but a, not even a dog is going to growl at the Israelites. Like there is clear, God has made this distinction there, which is really important for us to see. The Lord said to Moses, this is verse, uh, chapter 12, verse 1. I want to skip to chapter 12. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, this month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Stop real quick there. Notice what God is going to say. He gives the plague and he says, and this is a big deal. Now, some of you grew up hearing about the Passover. It's a big deal because God has said it's going to be a big deal. He says it's such a big deal that I'm going to change the calendar around this big deal. Okay, so it's, it's something worth, worth to be acknowledged. I will say, fun fact, um, there's another Exodus type of moment, actually two more in the scripture, uh, after this. So if you're familiar, you kind of know your Bible well, you'll know there's another part later on in scripture where the people of God are in Babylon, they're slaves in Babylon, and God lets them go home, right? This is called the exile to the return. Well, it's interesting for uh, the Jew at this time, God says, this is going to be the first month for you, uh, which is the March, April uh, time period. That's when the, the Jews celebrate Passover. That's the same exact time that the exile occurred, right? And it's actually also the same time that Jesus rose from the dead. So there's this kind of like, God's like, check it out what I'm doing with dates right now, okay? Um, I thought it was cool. All right. Verse 3. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, every man shall take a lamb. So we're going to get some details about this whole firstborn dying. According to the father's house, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, uh, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take, according to the number of persons, according to what each can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You, shall, uh, you may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. I, this is a couple things to observe in this section. This is the first time we've gotten in the book of Exodus where the people of Israel are not referred to as Israelites or Hebrews. It uses this ecclesia word, the same word where we get our gatherings or congregation or church from. It's the first time he calls them a congregation. And the Septuagint. So here's this idea. It's the first time God's bringing these people together. You're not just slaves in Egypt, but you are my people. Furthermore, I want you to see pieces of community in this. It's amazing what's going to happen. He gives, he lays out all these things. But listen, exactly at the same time, you're going to do this. Look at, uh, so just by order. Here's everybody at the same time is, is to do this. They're to get a, a, a sheep or goat, either one. It needs to be a male. It needs to be one year old. 
It can't have any defect, so no blemish. And you are to take it into your house for four days. Commentators say you're to bring it into your house for four days and treat it like your family. All of the Jews are going to do this, right? And then at the same time, you're going to slaughter that, that goat or that sheep. There's this act of worship that all, God's putting them all on the same page. So much so, did you notice that even if there's like a bachelor who's like, he's like 20, doesn't have like any other family, he can't take a goat on himself, you're to bring that person in. God's creating this community, this community that they're to do this together, worship together. They are one unit, which is really, really cool. So let's keep going. So to verse seven, this is where we begin to get the differentiation between that and those other plagues that we saw and this plague this morning. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts of the lintel of the house, of the houses in which they eat. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire with the unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted its head and its legs and its inner parts. And you shall uh, let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning, you shall burn. In this manner, you shall eat it. With your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. So now we're starting to get a little bit of unpacking of what's going on. Okay, God, you're going to kill the firstborn uh, uh, of Egypt. What, how, what's all this playing out, right? Pretend you don't know the story. Enter into the narrative. And God says, okay, so I want you to take this lamb. All right, Lord, we've got all this lamb. I want you to slaughter that lamb, and I want you to take the blood of that lamb, and I want you to put it on the two doorposts, right? Uh, and the lintel, which is this cross beam of a door. I want you to go around, and that blood... We'll explain that more, but then I want you to take that goat, okay? Now, okay, we're wiping on. Now what do we do, Lord? I want you to take that goat and look at the order of things. There are very specific order of things that you can see as it begins to to unpack. So uh, we have uh, kill the lamb, put the blood over the doorpost, cook the lamb, eat it all. If there's any extra, burn it. But then I want you to notice the in there. I want you to do this ready to go. So like, I want your sandals on your feet. I want your staff in your hand. You're going to eat this, but I want you to be ready to go. Okay. And, and, and God's communicating all this to the congregation. And we don't, we're like, what's happening. Right. But the, the narrative's continuing to unfold, which is really, really cool. Verse 12, for I will, so now we get what he's going to do for, I will pass through the land of Egypt that night. And I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on, uh, and on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgment. That's an important line. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. So, um, we're going to get into some of the unpacking of what God's doing here with the firstborn and, and, and all that. But I, I want you to see, there's been this warning with these other nine plagues. And now we get the sign why you're putting the blood on the doorpost. God essentially says, when I come down, I'll see the blood on the doorpost and I'll go, no death needs to occur here because death has already occurred here, right? A sacrifice has already been made. I'll see it. And so that's why you're doing it. It's a sign that you've listened to what I've had to say and a sacrifice has been made. And then I'll go to the next house, right? Okay. So that's kind of a little bit, which again, we might be familiar with some of this, but it's how it's working, right? And then we get to verse 14, and, and we're going to get this long section. I'm not going to read it all, but we're going to get this long section on um, remembering. So listen to this in verse 14. This day shall be to you a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord. Throughout your generations, a statute forever. You shall keep it as a feast. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall remove leaven out of your house. For if anyone eats what is leavened from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. So immediately we're starting to get into all these semantics. First thing I want you to notice is God is going to say what he's doing in this moment is not just changing the calendar, but I want you to remember this forever. Now this is hard because we are terrible as a culture at remembering. 
Like, even though we may not be a theocracy or even really be a, a specific religious nation, we might think we have ties to certain things. The reality is we're far more nationalistic. And so we should at least be good at remembering things that affect our nation. But two weeks ago, we had like the anniversary of 9-11. And I, I'm not, this isn't a shot anyone, but I, my guess is a lot of you went through the whole day and went, oh yeah, I forgot it's 9-11. It hasn't even been 20 years, Right. Either, like, listen, I'm over here listening to Courtesy You, the Red, White, and Blue all day long. I don't even like country music, and I'm listening to that song all day long because it's 9-11, right? Okay? And so I remember this, and you're trying to, like, okay, I want to make this important and see how it is. It hasn't even been 20 years. And, and honestly, to my kids, it's like it was Pearl Harbor or it was like the Exodus. Like, I don't know what happened in the 40s. I don't know when did it happen, right? They have no semblance of remembering. And God says, remember this. So much so he gives very strict details. And so just so you're aware, kind of on a a Judeo side of things, the Jews still continue to remember this the way we celebrate Easter, right? So your folks come or your friend comes always on Easter and they're like, why do you guys always talk about the resurrection? Because it's Easter. Every single year, that's what we're going to talk about. We are trying to form ourselves, shape ourselves to this idea of remembering what happened with Jesus, what he did, what he overcame. We're remembering. Once a year, you will know we will talk about this, and hopefully more than just that. We'll sing about it often, but we will remember this. And God says in this moment, I want you to remember the Passover. And so for Jews, they've been doing it for thousands of years. My best friend, Uh, Eric uh, grew up Jewish, and so I spoke with him on the phone about this and just looking at different things. So this is what you can kind of expect. So around the March-April time, the Passover season is about, it's a week long, right? This is everything that, it all comes from uh, this account that we're reading right now. What happens is about 30 days leading up to Passover, uh, at least a, a Jew that's still practicing, um, uh, they will have something called a Seder dinner and Seder just means order, um, which is, comes across as rules, which my buddy said, uh, it comes across as rules because we're Jewish and we love rules. Um, and I thought that was hilarious. He's like, he just, he grew up in that. He's like, I don't remember it. I just endured it. Right. And, and here's what you have uh, leading up about 30 days going into the Seder dinner, this Passover season. Uh, the household is to remove all leavened bread completely. Go through every nook and cranny, anywhere there's leaven, any bagel, get it all out of the house. And that week, there is no leaven, but they have lots of bread. It's just matzah bread. It's unleavened bread. Matzah bread for days, he said. Like, it's just everywhere, okay? And they have these very specific steps to remember this account. To this day, they're eating bitter herbs to remember the bitterness. They're eating certain foods to remember the bricks. They're doing things to remember this is what it was like in Egypt. This is how God saved us. God called his people to remember that he saved them right? And we're going to talk more about that next week, but I want you to see that here in the text. There's a a lot to to unpack about that, but let's keep going on. Verse 21, then Moses uh, called all the elders of Israel and said to them, so now we're going to start get some action, okay? Here we go. So now no longer it's God telling Moses what to say, but Moses telling the people, go and select lambs for yourself according to your clans and kill the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin. Just so you're aware, hyssop is like a certain plant. If you bind it together, it kind of looks like a, a big paintbrush. It's actually the thing that uh, David asked that God would cleanse him after he committed adultery. Cleanse me with hyssop. It's always a sign of kind of cleansing of sin. Um, so hyssop's to be applied uh, uh, to this blood and, and put over the basin. Uh, and touch the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. None of you shall go out of the door of his house until the morning. So now we have it set. The door is set. So the people of God do all this together. They take the, the, the hyssop. They, they uh, go over the doorpost and the lintel. And they're not to cross that threshold. They stay in their house. Stay there. 
just stay, right? And so here's what we have, this, this action. And then God comes in. I want you to listen to some of the movement here of God because it's important to notice. At midnight, so that verses 23 through 28, kind of he explains in further detail what he wants him to do, but everything I've already unpacked. At midnight, in verse 29, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat in his throne to the firstborn of the captive who is in the dungeon. And all the firstborn of the livestock. So he did exactly what he said he was going to do. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all of his servants of the uh, Egyptians. And there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where someone was not dead. Then he summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, Up, go, out from among the pe- my people, both you and the people of Israel, and go, serve the Lord as you have said. Take your flocks and your herds as you have said, and be gone, and bless me also. So as it was called, this is the thing, Pharaoh... I mean, I just kind of enter into that narrative there. There's not a house that someone's not crying out. They're gone. They're gone. They're gone. And this Pharaoh loses his son and goes, get out of here. I'm done. I should have listened with the frogs. I should have listened with the boils. I should have listened with the gnats. I didn't go, right? And he makes this last declaration if you're interested. We don't know exactly why he says, but bless me also. A lot of people believe that this is like his almost plea, last plea of Moses, completely defeated going, but can you raise my son back? the dead, right? He, he recognizes his powerlessness in this. And then it takes place. The Egyptians were urgent with the people to send them out of the land in haste. For they said, we shall all be dead. So the people took their dough before it was leavened and their uh, kneading bowls were bound up in their cloaks on their shoulders. The people of Israel had also done as Moses told them, for they had asked the Egyptians for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians so that, the, so that they let them have as they asked. Thus they plundered the Egyptians. Now we're starting to see why he didn't want leavened bread and why the Jews today still celebrate Passover without leavened bread. It's a sign of remembering that they were hastily removed out of Egypt. But there's something to acknowledge here, uh, what's going on with Egypt. Egypt has been a powerhouse for a long time in the world in this period. And not just that, but they have plundered a lot of countries and nations and a lot of people they have taken and it's been done by force and now we find you kind of get back what what you did but the people of israel passively in this moment god does it all they accept the gifts they themselves are plundered so god is just utter decimation to the people of israel again we're going to talk about some of that but let's keep going we're almost done with our text i promise so the people of israel are going out and the people of Israel sojourned from Ramses to Succoth, about 600,000 men on foot besides women and children. Just two notes there. Uh, the journey is about eight miles is what they traveled. And 600,000 men would equate roughly, people argue, about one and a half to two million people. That's how many people are leaving Egypt at this time. So a lot of people. Uh, a mixed multitude also went with them a very mu- and very much livestock, both flocks and herds. And they baked unleavened cakes in the dough that they had brought out of Egypt, for it was not leavened because they were thrust out of Egypt and could not wait, nor had they prevented, uh, prepared any provisions for themselves, right? So they go to this place. Uh, the place, just so you know, Succoth, uh, we also saw the same word appear in Jonah. It means booths. It's a place of like... Um, resting literally like they went to like Kicketville, like just relaxville that's why rob you were in slavery and god brought him to uh this place now i want you to listen to this he gives god's going to give us a um a chronology of time but not only that tell something about himself here to finish our text then the lord uh or, i'm sorry the time that the people of israel lived in egypt was 430 years 
At the end of 430 years, so now they're out, right? On that very day, all the hosts of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. It was a night of watching by the Lord to bring them out of the land of Egypt. So this same night is a night of watching kept to the Lord by all the people of Israel throughout their generations. So we have this idea now they're out. And it makes this crazy declaration as the people of Israel um, are brought out of Egypt by the Lord. The people are in this place of rest, literally a place of rest. And it makes a statement. You can see it there at the beginning of verse 42. It was a night of watching by the Lord. I, I love what Victor P. Hamilton said about this part, what's going on here. And it's so poetic. I wish I could unpack it further. It says this. The section ends by noting that this night, uh, that this night departure is not a night in which the Hebrews exercise great bravado. Rather, it ends by focusing on the Lord of the Hebrews. Here is heaven's shepherd keeping watch over his flock by night. The imagery is profound. The people of Israel are brought out by God and God says, I got you. Like, you're okay. I'm watching over you. I know you've spent 404 centuries in Egypt and this new place. I've got you. God, oh, that night he watched over them. It was a night of watching by the Lord. I mean, just think of what that speaks to God's character, his care of his people. Now, there's uh, six or seven more verses that we need to cover. But before we do, I actually want to take this opportunity now to zoom out because I think those last verses are going to speak to one of the things that we need to see as we zoom out of the text. And it's hard because the, th- the thing about it is some of this text is duh, like I know where we're going to go with this. And some of it I feel like we just miss in general. We've heard the text so much or grew up watching a movie. No matter what age you are, there's always this movie that can be applied. The most recent movie to it is terrible, Gods and Kings. But regardless of what it is, like we, we kind of have a, a good notion and a handle on what this is. And so um, I want to step out and just observe four things that you might or might not be aware of in this text. Okay? And the first thing that I think is just blatantly obvious, if you were just to pick up the Bible, you're not a believer in here, something that I have to imagine picks up, you see, but you might not know how to translate or understand it. So I'll do my best here now. It's clear that God cares desperately about justice. Like he is adamant about not just justice, but about executing justice. Now, now let that churn in your hearts, especially again, if you're not a believer in here, you're kind of like, you want to kick back against that. Because in the Western kind of cultural mind, we process everyone as innocent, you guys. We process, process everyone as like, they didn't do any wrong, or even if they did, eh, well, what should we do? And it's hard for us to get our mind around this. And so hear me, like, that puts us in an interesting seat, if you can just imagine for a moment. Because we are now in the position of judging the judger. We're deciding what's okay. And so here we watch a God, a judger, who's executing justice, and the firstborn of an entire nation are dead. And it's hard from our posture, because the reality is we tend to be a little fickle. And so we're in this posture, we're looking at him, and we're able to decide what's right and not right for him to do. But the reality is Corbin was four years old, my oldest son. Him and I had super banging long hair together before we cut it. And I cut it a week after this situation happened. We were at a playground, and a kid called him a girl and was making fun of him. I was ready to burn that playground to the ground, okay? Right? So, so here I am, like, I want to execute justice in my way, right? But you're not in that moment, so you can say from afar, well, he, okay, come on, we don't have to burn the playground to the ground, right? But I'm like, no, like, I'm good with that. So, so here, it, it's an interesting place. So now, now, listen. I don't feel the need to defend God. God, at the end of days, will defend himself. But if I was asked to in this moment, here's what I would tell you. 
Here is, I've read this narrative, here's what I see. I see a nation that has in mass amounts, not just hundreds, not just thousands, but tens of thousands of babies. And we're not just getting into the abortion argument. I mean, children out of the womb, three, six, nine months, a year old, are thrown into a river to die. Tens of thousands of them. I see a nation that in mass amounts has subjugated a people, not just to passive slavery, but to difficult slavery. On the daily, Israelites dying. I see a nation that is egotistical, prideful, and outright evil. Pharaoh is meant to be this archetype that symbolizes all that is wrong with the world. And so it's, it's maybe easy for us to go, well, I don't know, I don't know. But man, if you were on this side of things, if you lost your child... If you lost your friend, if you were in slavery and you're dying of starvation, you might have a different perspective. And so we become fickle based on where we are in the narrative. But if I had to defend it, it almost feels, if I can be straight with you, God was a little too patient. I started to read the narrative last week as Juan and Charles were breaking it down. I'm going, dude, at what point, nine of these plagues do I just, I would have been done after two. You don't want to, like, hail's coming from the sky, like holes in your homes, frogs are in your ovens. What don't you get? It felt like he was too patient. So I've read a quote uh, to you guys before. It's by a guy named Miroslav Wolf. He's a a European theologian. I've only read a part of it, but I want to read all of it in its context. And it's large, but it gets at this idea of justice and the way that we process justice. And why I think our Western minds in America might process it differently than the people who originally read this text for the first time. So let me read this quote. I'll, I'll follow it on the screen with you here. It says, one could object that it is not worthy of God to wield the sword. Is God not long-suffering with all powerful love? A counter-question could go something like this. Is it not a bit too arrogant to presume that our contemporary sensibilities about what is compatible with God's love are so much much healthier than those of the people of God throughout the whole history of Judaism and Christianity? So we'll leave that up there for a second. His point is simple, right? You can go, wait a minute, if God's all like loving... Like, how, why would he do this? How could we just give him a pass on this? And his point is, you're sitting there at like 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, 70 years old. Let's say you're 150 years old in this room. You're sitting here at 150 years old, old in your room, in this room, and you're going, yeah, this is what I think. And you just go like, I think I know more than all of the people in Christian and Judea history uh, uh, and Jewish history before us. They, they didn't run into a problem with this. It was, I was hard-pressed to find any commentary that pressed against what God is doing here pre-1800s. No, this is a concept that we are in the place of judging God. Before this, you co- find constant narratives, constant narratives. My master's is in missional theology, and we find a people constantly who are on mission running up to this idea, God is holy, and I am not. So whatever he does, that was the, but that's not the posture that we take. That's not our default in Western America in the 21st century. And so his point is simple. We think we're smarter than people before us. But he goes on to say this. In a world of violence, it would not be worthy of God not to wield the sword. If God were not angry at injustice and deception and did not make the final end to violence, God would not be worthy of our worship. Hear me when you say this. You're stuck in traffic and you see the person in the carpool lane drive right by you and there ain't nobody else in the car with them. Tell me you aren't thinking to yourself, I hope they get pulled over. You want justice. You want justice. Maybe some of you are the carpool lane, right? And I'm thinking that about you, okay? You want justice. You're wired in God's way. And because you want, like, that's a good thing. 
Not to will evil on anyone, but you, it's a good thing to go, listen, that's not right, and it shouldn't be that way. And if God didn't fix those things, not just here now, but at the end of days, when he brings justice so much that blood will be running through the streets, we've got to step back for a second and recognize he knows what's best. But let's get at our posture, because this next part, I think, gets, it begins to get at our posture. It's in yellow, because, not because I want you to repeat it, but because I want you to uh, uh, hear it. A belief in divine vengeance will be unpopular with many Christians, especially, though, especially theologians in the West. To the person who is inclined to dismiss it, I suggest imagining that you are, a, uh, you are delivering a lecture in a war zone. Let's keep going. Among your listeners are people whose cities and villages have been first plundered, then burned and leveled to the ground, whose daughters and sisters have been raped, whose fathers and brothers have had their throats slit. He's speaking out of this, out of firsthand knowledge. This is his story. He goes, man, divine justice. Like, oh, well, he goes, no, no, no. All I've got is divine justice. I can't do anything. Like from where I come from, watching my brother's throat being slit, he watched his sister be raped, I, I have to imagine God is just and he will execute justice. But then listen to this. Soon you would discover that it takes, listen to this, soon you would discover that it takes the quiet of a suburban home for the birth of that human nonviolence, which would correspond to God's refusal to judge. In a scorched land soaked in the blood of the innocent, it will invariably die. And as soon as one, or as soon And as one watches it die, one would do well to reflect about many other pleasant captivities of the liberal mind. His point is simple. It's easy for you to say, I can't believe God would execute justice like this as you sit behind your padlocks. (laughs) Like, we have a life of ease. But listen, listen, listen. If it wasn't like that, you want justice. Matter of fact, you might be reading this story as the people of Syria currently are wondering why God is not just bringing the rain on al-Qaeda? Why is he just not doing, why, why are mass amounts, and, that, and that, we're talking even Muslim people, the Imago Dei, people made in the image of God, recognize, it doesn't matter, believer, non-believer, it doesn't matter where you are, you recognize when justice needs to take place, you recognize executing justice is a good thing, but we take the posture of how much, how little, when, and where, and so I don't need to defend God, but if I was to defend God, I would say I don't need to understand why and how he does this. But here's what I know. He's good. He's good. Now, that leads to a second thing. And it's almost like a no duh when it comes to this text. Um, because this is usually the climax of a lot of these stories. But the rest of the New Testament, um, the, all of the New Testament picks up on this Exodus account of the Passover as Jesus being like the gleaming hope of the reality of what we see in this Passover. I.e., if you don't understand how to connect these dots, let me make it simple to you. What we come to find out is John the Baptist announces Jesus in John 1, and he says this, Now behold the Lamb of God who is slain for the sins of the world. You hear that? Jesus is the Lamb. It's Jesus' blood that is a sign. It is Jesus' blood as a sign that we hide behind. Can you hear that? No, 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 I don't think, like, can you hear that? The Israelites don't got, they don't got bravado. Matter of fact, let's, the spirit of death passed through the whole land. Did you see that in the text? The whole land, Egypt and Israel. And so listen, it doesn't matter. He's passing through the whole land here. It wasn't the Israelites thinking they're awesome because they're the people of God. It wasn't the Egyptians. Anybody could have partook of this. And as a matter of fact, as you read, there's a mixed multitude that exits out, not just the people of Israel. Some Israelites choose not to, and some Egyptians choose to. 
And as this mixed multitude exits Egypt, it's all about the blood, baby. It's all about the blood. It had nothing to do with who they were, their righteousness. It was all about the blood. And this is exactly what we get in the New Testament. This is exactly what we get. Jesus is our lamb. He's a sacrificial lamb, and he is the one we hide behind. It is his blood that was shed for us. Now, that leads kind of the domino effect to the third thing that I want you to see in this text that I think is obvious. That it's clear as we read this that God, as I said from the jump, makes a distinction between the the, the people, the people of Egypt and the people of Israel. Matter of fact, the text goes on to say, if you can read it, verses 43 through 51, I won't read it all. He says this in verse 48. If a stranger shall sojourn with you and would keep the Passover to the Lord, let all his males be circumcised. Then he may come near and keep it. He shall be a native of the land. Now, right before in this section, he said, I don't want anyone, any Egyptian, nobody's going to celebrate the Passover. There's this distinction made, but he also says this. There's a distinction about the people of Israel, Goshen, where the people of God are, but there's also acceptance. So, so hear this. This is a crazy narrative. This is true for the church today. Listen, if you're out to make the Christianity cool thing, it's not going to work. Christianity was never meant to be the hip thing. And so you're trying to drive into like the, the suburb, maybe the, the Detroit hipster model. You're trying to get there. Listen, holiness has never been cool and it's never going to be cool. But there is a distinction about the people of God that we have certain laws of liberty that we follow. We are distinct. We're meant to be different. There's distinction between us and the rest of culture. Unfortunately, it's crazy because the Mormons and the Jehovah's Witnesses have hijacked this. They're seen as distinct. And it's, oh, it's so nauseating because we have something so much better. The Holy Spirit dwelling within us, leading us into these conversations to show us, not by just mere action, but by who we are. We are different. But we're not just different. Look at it. Look at the text. Verse 38 a mixed multitude also went up with them, right? Verse 48, if a stranger shall sojourn uh, with you and would keep the Passover uh, of the Lord, let all the males be circumcised and he gives more rules. So this, what he says is, listen, here it is. Here's the people. We're distinct, but at any moment, anyone is welcome to join our fold. But this is important, but it's not about like the rules or the laws or coming to church. No, 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 no. We got rescued by the blood. So, so, so listen, Yes, join us. Everyone is welcome to join us. And here's what we say to our neighbors, our friends, our coworkers, our lost family members. Here's what we say to them. You're still in Egypt. You're still a slave. But come be part of a distinct people that is freed from slavery. We're not offering, offering begrudging like accountability. We're offering pure, free joy because of the blood of the lamb. The community of faith has always meant to be distinct, And it's always meant to be accepting. We are a people of mission, which leads to my last point, and I will pray for us. This forces us um, to make a choice. And I speak both to the believer and the non-believer alike. There is no half doorpost, half lintel of the blood of the lamb. So so, um, as uh, John Del Husay Jr., he says it perfectly. He says, there's no Switzerland in spiritual warfare. We can't sit kind of in the middle and go, I don't know what to do. Hear me. In this story, in this narrative, it is clear. You are either with the Egyptians or you are with the Israelites. And the distinction between both these groups is the blood over the doorpost. And so you as a believer can think you continue to earn that grace, but you're missing it. 
You're missing it. And if you're not, and you're going, I don't know Jesus, I don't know, I'm trying to figure this whole thing out, and you're being honest with where you are, like, I, I just, I'm trying to understand this. Here, you've got a decision to make. Where are you at on this? I will say this, not as a fire and brimstone, but judgment is coming. It's coming. And there's no getting by it. There's no back door. Pray you'd be wise in that decision. Let me pray for you. Father, thank you so much for who you are. Thanks for your grace and your goodness. Um, The book of Exodus has been insanely challenging for us, so we're grateful that you've preserved it for us as 21st century readers. We're grateful that we uh, still, after thousands of years, feel this deep-down conviction by it. So I pray that would be true of us. One, that we would see that you are just and you will execute justice. You're good in that. Two, we would see and recognize, Jesus, you are the lamb, the blood of the lamb. Three, Jesus, we'd recognize that we are a distinct people that offers hope to all people, that anyone, the sins of the world, as John the Baptist said in 115. And then lastly, Jesus, I don't know where everyone is in the room, but um, Holy Spirit, I, I pray that you'd begin to pound on some hearts and um, have them recognize a decision does need to be made. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.